My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Welcome to Sunrise. Uh, we're glad you're here. You know, I want to share a little bit as we start a new series on living generously. A month ago, I invited a friend to come in who is a part of an organization that leads weekend retreats called Journey of Generosity. I've gone through this before. It's great. You open up the scriptures, you talk about Jesus' dialogue about generosity. And I knew that that's affected my life. It's affected my family's life. And I wanted it to affect more people. So we had some staff in there. It was a great event, great opportunity. Uh, the question is, how do we expand our heart to be more and more generous to actually what we're going to call now in this series, live generously. And, uh, as we walk through that, just, it was a reminder again, that generosity is really a heart issue. Uh, generosity is about the heart that when God invites us to be generous, it's not about, um, our time or our effort or energy or wallet or whatever. When we might think about generosity, it's really about uh, the attitude of our heart. And, and the model, of course, is God. God's heart was generous toward us. And in his generosity, he has brought change for us. Uh, one of the scriptures that jumped out to me was in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, you know, the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this, that God was generous to you and to me, though he was rich. Good, good, good picture here. He's in heaven. He's sitting on, you know, all, all the, the beauty of having the clouds and, you know, the thrones and all that stuff. And angels are worshiping him. Though he was rich in all ways, uh, for our sakes, he became poor. He came into this earthly existence, took on flesh, born a baby uh, into a poor family, grew up. Uh, literally, the Bible says he was homeless, didn't have a place to lay his own head, relied on the generosity and kindness of disciples and supporters, ministered for just a, num- just a few years, three years or so, and then died. Uh, broke, poor, uh, with just, you know, one article of clothing that they gambled for. And, and he was rich. God himself stepped out of the glories of heaven to come down into our uh, filthy, pathetic existence, this earth, to live our life, to take on our flesh so that we could become rich. He says here, by his poverty, he could make you rich. Now, that's a spiritual generosity. That God set the standard. He, he stepped forward. He was first in line when it came to generosity. That God looked at us in our condition, our poor condition, spiritually speaking, 
Um, and he, he wanted us to be rich. And so the only way to do that was to give his life. And the Bible says as a ransom. He, he paid for this transaction with his life. And so now we get to enjoy the riches of a relationship with God. But it was God who acted first in generosity. He stepped forward when we had a need. And that was because his heart was for you and for me. And through this journey of generosity, we kind of walked through that and saw that when we get our heart in the right place, generosity flows out of our heart because we're never more like God than when we give generously that for God so loved the world that he gave and what he gave wasn't money. What he gave was himself and he gave us life through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the reality of generosity is something that I, I really think we ought to consider in ever increasing ways. Uh, obviously, you know, we're, we're generous as a church. We gave $95,000 to a Burundian offering last year. We, we gave $60,000 last Easter to train pastors and missionaries and do evangelism in Cuba. We're, we're a generous church. I get all that financially speaking, but let's think about generosity in broader, broader terms. What would it look like for us to be truly generous and live generous in our time, our talents, our treasures? That's kind of what we talk about in church world in those aspects. There's a lot more to generosity than just thinking about money. In fact, uh, over the weeks to come, we'll look at the many facets of generosity as we turn it side to side. And only one of those will be about money. And the rest of them are going to be about the varying aspects of generosity that God has modeled for us first and now invites us to walk with him on. Uh, I was reading this book uh, by Tim Keller, pastor at uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And it's talking about the ministry of mercy. And he uses the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a great book if you want a book to read to challenge your heart on, on mercy. And, and this, is, this is what he says in this story here. He says, why is generosity... The mark of being a Christian. So it's just a subset of this book, but it grabbed me because of the, the word generosity. Why is generosity, why is that action of giving away, why is generosity the mark of being a Christian? Well, imagine a person who's deathly ill. The doctor announces to him that there's a medicine which can certainly cure him. Without it, he has no hope. However, the doctor says it's extremely expensive. You'll have to sell your cars, even your home, to buy it. You may not wish to spend so much. <laughs> Interesting words from a doctor. Uh, it goes on. The man turns to a doctor and says, what do my cars mean to me now? What good will my house be? I must have that medicine. It is precious to me. These other things which were so important to me now look pale by comparison to the medicine. They are expendable now. Give me the medicine. See, that's the perspective change we've had. When we once used to take stock and not just take stock, but live with all of the things in our life as the number one reason to live, we now have exchanged our very purpose for living. And now we understand that those other things are not bad, but they're not life anymore. Those are things that are coming along with life or could be a detraction to life. But the reality is those are expendable because true life is a relationship with God and furthering that with someone else. And then he wraps up the quote with this. He says, the apostle Peter says to you who believe he being Christ is precious. The grace of God makes Christ precious to us so that our possessions, our money, our time have all become eternally and utterly expendable. They used to be crucial to our happiness and they are not so now. 
That when we come into a relationship with God and, 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 and not just pray a prayer, but truly have this heart change, this life change, what was once so precious to us, possessions, piling more and more on, thinking that we would have more life by piling more things on, really... I mean, they're okay, but they don't have the same flavor, the same taste anymore. Because what has now become precious to us is Jesus Christ. And the way Jesus Christ has lived and died for us, and now how we live and die for him and for others. What once was so important, what once was everything to us, what was our pursuit is now different because we've pursued another. And that is God himself. And that now he wants to pursue the world through us. He wants to pursue the people of the world that have yet to enter into a relationship through us. And by our own perspective change on what truly is life, we now have opportunities to give life to others. We now are not just the recipients of God's generous grace. We're the conduit which we could flow to others that people could see God in us and through us by the way we live, by the way we act, by the way we, we serve and all the things we might do and the many facets of living generously. Other people far from God would look at us and say, I see God in that. I actually see the best apologetic defense of our faith isn't some argument. It's our very practice and how we live our life and how we give our life away. And so in the coming weeks, I want to talk about that by the very understanding of generosity and I want to see it as an action, a lifestyle. I want to see the expression of our faith. Um, I, I was reading through the, the Old Testament, just finished that, and, and uh, I keep getting struck by Isaiah. And I, I, I just copied this one and just bookmarked it, thinking, I'm going to use this. This is such a powerful verse. But generous people plan to do what is generous. Now, people that maybe are charitable, uh, they might plan. You know, they might you know, have the end of the year tax return to make sure that they get their IRS receipt, you know, or they give charitably because there's something that's received back. But generous people, people who've truly had a heart change and they're generous, they plan their generosity. They plan their ways to be generous because it's flowing out of the heart. Generous people plan to do what is generous and they stand firm in their generosity. I was struck by this. I thought... Do we stand firm in our generosity? Not just when there's excess or abundance, but when there isn't any abundance, when there isn't anything. Are we still planning to be generous? Or are we generous when it's convenient? When it happens to, you know, move our heart? Generous at Christmas time when the World Vision catalog comes in, you know, and we give a goat or a pig or something like that, you know, and those are good. They're, they're really good things. They're, they're good ways to start. They're bad ways to end, but they're good ways to start. Generous in our time when we go and, and we serve our schools and we, you know, throw some bark dust down and, you know, we, we clean up a few things. Those are, those are great things to start with. They're horrible ways to end because there's so much more to generosity than just a, a one Saturday a year serving. When we think about the needs of children that are orphans, when we think about the needs of folks that are widows and widowers in our community, we think about the needs of the people that are poor, that are homeless. You know, if just to, to do one act, that's not a bad thing, unless that's all we ever do. But generous people plan. Their, their heart expands and opens up. The more generous they are, they have more generosity. And they're firm in their resolve. They make a commitment to generosity. And through this series, that's the question I want to ask. What kind of commitment 
to consistent generosity have you planned? Have you proposed? Have you set aside to actually do? This is toward the end of the year. I know my wife and I, we have a habit because we're Dave Ramsey people. You know, we've gone through financial peace. We do our budget stuff and we work through that. And as we look at next year's budget, as we plan generosity, there are some goals that we have every year. And we hope to increase those as we plan more. Of course, life gets more expensive when your kids get, you know, to be teenagers and especially have three of them in the house and they eat everything. Okay. Um, And it does get more expensive. But how do you plan generosity? Because if, if you're just like everybody else, generosity is an opportunity or an option for you in that moment. But what would it be like for us to look ahead and say this season This Christmas season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, holiday, New Year's, we're going to plan some generosity. This next year, we're going to stand firm and we're going to make some generous plans in our time, how we schedule our our week, our month, and our talents, our abilities, what God has given to us and how we could actually give that away to others by our abilities, by our actual passions, our hands. And and by our treasures, the things that matter most to us, that we desire to acquire in this world. What would it look like for us to plan it in our generosity? Uh, Well, we're going to look at stories in Luke. Now, uh, open your Bible, Luke 18. It's page 800 in your chair Bible. That's pretty simple. Uh, Luke, we're going to start in verse 9, Luke 18. Um, As we went through Matthew, it was a year and a half through Matthew. I was excited about certain stories and because I read through the Bible every year, I read the gospels every year and you kind of go quickly through the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, I, I kind of got confused in my head and, and I kept looking for certain stories in Matthew and I'm opening a different translation because it's not in this one. And I go to this one. I go, well, I know I read that story somewhere. And I discovered that some of the critical stories that Jesus uses to illustrate generosity are not in Matthew. There in Luke. So as opposed to going through a year and a half in Luke, I thought we could just do it in like seven or eight weeks. Are you okay with that? All right. Okay, good. So I wasn't going to be that generous uh, with Luke, but I'm going to be generous enough to share some of the stories in the book of Luke that are Jesus stories about generosity. And again, they're not going to be the obvious stories of generosity. If all we think about when we think of generosity is money. But generosity in the varying facets. And in Luke 18, uh, we're going to see this. We're going to see a a beautiful illustration of generosity. Uh, But you're not going to see it right away. Uh, We're going to take a look at it. So you got it there, uh, Luke chapter 18, and uh, starting in verse 9 or so. Uh, So Jesus tells a story. Now, he tells a story. Everything has a context. And he's, he's telling, Luke's telling the context right here. Jesus is going to tell a story for a purpose. As he often does, he tells parables. He tells little stories. Parable is uh, a word that means to cast alongside, to tell a story, to illustrate a purpose, uh, a meaning. Some have said a parable is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Jesus tells a parable. He told a lot of them, and uh, he did it for the purpose of teaching. And so here's one of the stories Jesus tells. To, he told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. So before we get to the story, think about that. There were some people on the planet at the time of Jesus who were confident of their own righteousness. They had a system of works where they did enough works, whatever that meant, and then they felt confident. At the end of the work, they could go home and say, hey, I did something, and God's pleased with me now, right? That I have worked enough that God is pleased with me. That I have done enough things. That I have a series 
series of checkboxes of lists that I can do those things and then I can go home comfortably because I know I've done enough to meet the requirements that God has set up because God's requirements are what's on my list, right? And to those that were confident of their own righteousness, who walked around superior, smug, self-righteous, Jesus says, I want to talk to you about that. I want to, I want to illustrate something. I want to communicate something to you because you're missing the point. You think, as we'll see, you're generous, but you're not generous. You're stingy. And I want to illustrate how God chooses to be generous when we choose to be broken. To those that were uh, self-confident, he says, about their righteousness, he wanted to illustrate through a story. And it says here, uh, two men went to the the temple to pray. Now, uh, in the Bible time, in the New Testament time in particular, when it says they went to the temple to pray, uh, it, it does literally mean pray, but it was like a worship service. So the apostles you see in the book of Acts go three times to the temple to pray. But it wasn't just a prayer service. It was worship. There was some teaching and things like that. But it was a, a, a church-type experience, okay? So they, kind of, they went to church in that sense. They went to synagogue or whatever, but specifically went to the temple, which is the place in Jerusalem where you would go to meet with God. So two men went to the temple to pray. And he says, one was of this category in class and another was of a different category in class. The first category in class was a highly respected person who by all means had achieved righteousness. And the other one was so lowly and despicable uh, that no one would even remotely consider them righteous. And so he says, two people went up to the temple to pray. One was the Pharisee And the other was a despised tax collector. Now, we are tainted, unfortunately, because we think of Pharisee as a negative, as a pejorative term. We look at a Pharisee and we think, uh, obviously, that's a hypocrite. That's not how the people thought at the time. And so we have 2,000 years of history and we have a whole lot of church sermons about how bad Pharisees were and how self-righteous and hypocritical they were. Strip all that away for just a moment and understand the horror and the shock that the people would experience when Jesus concludes this story. He says two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and uh, Pharisee by the very definition, their name literally means separated ones. These are the Pharisees. They didn't want to be tainted by sin. They didn't want to hang out with broken, hurting, sinful people, prostitutes, tax collectors, people like that. They wouldn't hang out with them because their number one desire was to be pure before God. And they felt if they could be pure before God, that would require them to make sure that they were pure in their relationships. And so anybody that was remotely sinful or bad, they wouldn't spend time with them. Now, I grew up in a church with a church background that had this kind of attitude. Now, it sounds harsh, but what I mean by this is it's called secondary separation. It's one thing the Bible says to separate from sin, so to to not sin. But secondary separation says you have to also separate from anyone that sins. Okay, and uh, that's easy if you have a classification, a list of sins that you can, you know, kind of, you know, look at and list. Um, But it's not easy if you realize we've all sinned and we've all fallen short. Right. But uh, in this religious culture, it was a lot about truth, not much grace. And it said, if you were to really be a good Christian, you wouldn't hang out with anybody that's lost, sinful. 
Okay. And so even someone in the church, if they did something horrible and despicable, you know, you would separate from them, which the joke was, you know, one day you'll separate from your wife, you know, or your husband, because they're obviously a sinful person, right? Because you're the only righteous person. And what happens is you get that feeling when you start separating from anyone that's not quite as righteous as you think they should be that they have things that are wrong with them, that they've sinned, then you want to pull away to be pure. One day you'll find yourself in a room all alone. And it's very (laughs) self-deceived. Okay, because you're not righteous. And this is what the Pharisees were all about. But even though Jesus calls them hypocrites in Matthew 23 over and over and over again, Jesus calls them out. At the time, they weren't seen as hypocrites. They were seen as the righteous ones, as the pure people, as the ones who had done so much to separate themselves from any sinfulness. They were the good guys. Well, enter the bad guy. He's a tax collector. We know about tax collectors, right? People that turned against their own people. They were enemies of their group because they befriended the state. Roman was the the state at the time. And so they sold themselves because of money. And they went out and farmed through a system of taxes. And they would bid on the ability to get taxes. And then they would extract as much money as possible, pay the bill to Rome. As long as Rome was happy, they were fine. They had the henchmen of Rome to help extract the taxes. They were the mob essentially the mafia and yet whatever else they could get off of the top and skim off that was okay as far as rome was concerned as long as rome got their taxes you could get whatever else you wanted and needed and that was how it worked and so you were rich you had so much by way of possessions you were the wealthy of the age but you were the corrupt you were the desperately bad people of the world so bad that you would turn against your own race of people just For the love of money. And so a very greedy person. And so Jesus says, two guys go up to pray. One was the Pharisee and the other was the despised tax collector. Now look at the response and the attitude of these people. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like the other people. Cheaters, sinners, Baptists, Steeler fans. I'm certainly not like... That Seattle Seahawks fan, I, I, I sorry, I'm a Raider fan, so I'm, I'm worse than anybody on, in this room. I mean, look at this. You see what he's doing is he's got a series of classifications. And we all have those, right? We, come on, we all have classifications. We all judge and we are prejudiced because of the things we think are worse than us, right? Because we all have a scale. And we're... I mean, we're, we're not perfect. We're not Mother Teresa, Billy Graham kind of thing. But we're better than, you know, the rest of the people in the church, right? Yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty good, you know. We're, we've got some humility because we're not like Jesus or whatever. But we're close, you know. And then we have a list of things. I'm not like that, right? He goes, God, I, I'm so proud that I'm not like those people. I'm not a cheater. I'm not a sinner, adulterer. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I mean, that, that fast twice a week. This guy goes without food 48 hours in a week. And it's not just for a diet. It's, it's for spiritual religiosity. So he could focus on God. Whether he does it twice in a row or Monday and Friday, I don't really know. But he fasts twice a week. That's pretty serious, right? And I give you a tenth of my income. That's the 
the, well, it's actually like the minimum in the Old Testament. Uh, if you add up all the tithes and everything, there was like 40% of everything they had. They, they gave to God in some way, shape, or form with the temple and the festivals and things like that. But the tenth was like the foundation of everything. I give you all this, God. I am so glad. In fact, I think you are so glad to have me. All right? So that's his attitude. Now, just a little side note. L- look at this, this word, I. This word I. Ah, this word I. Oh, let me see this word I, this word I. You know, five times this guy thinks about himself. You know, if you go into the Old Testament, there's this picture of uh, Satan. And uh, he is hovering over the throne of God. He's one of those anointed angels. Beautiful, most beautiful of all those created angels. And uh, he looks at God's throne And you know what it says? It says five times. He says, I, I will, I will, I will. You know, I I want that throne. I want this. Satan was filled with pride and it was pride that brought him down. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that this guy says five times I, because pride is what it's the devil's workshop. And this guy is so full of himself, right? He's so self-confident. Then Jesus goes to the next guy. He says, okay, that's the Pharisee. But the tax collector, the despised tax collector, stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow. So obviously there's, there's uh, got to be some wailing going on here. There's got to be some intense sorrow. Uh, there's got to be some remorse and repentance. Something happened. He broke somehow. He's a tax collector. He's got all the money. But somehow he went home one day and he realized, you know, his life was morally bankrupt. Not financially bankrupt, but morally bankrupt. And somehow, for some reason, he broke. It's just a story. Jesus tells it. We don't know that it really happened. He's just telling the story. Um, but he says this guy was so repentant that he beat his chest in agony and pain and sorrow, saying, Oh, God. Be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. The, the only I hear isn't that I'm so great. So I'm lost. I am, I'm gone. I'm a hopeless cause. I'm a sinner. And Jesus concludes with this. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. That would have completely blown the circuits of everybody who heard the story. Because it doesn't make sense in a very religious culture. Because in a religious culture, whether it's a church culture today or whether it's a religious culture at Judaism at the time of Jesus, you know, you've already decided who's in and who's out. You've already classified people. And, you know, often we feel pretty secure in our classifications. We're more smug. Uh, We're safe. All right. We're not like those people, you know. And and yet Jesus says, here's the truth of the matter. The, the, The reality is that one guy did go home justified. To which everybody would have said, oh, the Pharisee, yeah, that's kind of how it works. He, of course he's justified. Look at all he's done. And Jesus says, no, he's not the one that went home justified. Justified means to be uh, in a right relationship with or be made right with. And so the Bible says, and that, that's a theological term, to be justified means we now stand in a right relationship with God. And so when uh, the Apostle Paul writes a lot in Romans that we're justified by faith... 
not by works. It means that we stand before God in a right relationship, not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done for us. Okay. It's not a works-based righteousness. Now, the Pharisee had a really good works-based righteousness system going. He was very, pretty confident in it. And everybody else thought he would have made it. But if, if, if this guy was really, uh, you know, superior and smug, the tax collector was sorrowful and broken. He was a sinful person. And because of his repentance, because of his brokenness, because of the fact that he was morally, spiritually bankrupt, and he admitted that to God, God made a transaction in his life, and now he stands justified. He now stands in a right relationship with God. Not because of any effort on his own, not a works righteousness, but total faith in what God could do. And he says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves would be exalted. And that's just a good standalone verse anyway, okay? That's a really good principle for life. You know, if you think that you should be in a high position, be careful because you're going to fall. Because when you lift yourself up, as everybody in this world does, um, you are going to teeter and you're going to fall at some point. Now, this completely goes against our current culture and system of how we do things in the world, right? You know, you, you go to school for this, you learn this, you, you know, you, you, you go to these ways and these places that people say, if you want to get anywhere in the world, here's what you do. You advance yourself. You, you, you get people to promote you to this place. Uh, as, as silly as it is, um, you can even hire your own paparazzi these days. You can. And, and people do. Because with just a little bit of money, you can get a few photographers. But if photographers show up, guess what? More photographers show up. If the press shows up, guess what? More press shows up. If publicity is there and you want somehow to be seen as someone important, you can actually pay money to get people to think you're important or pretend. And then some people will come around and they'll be fooled into thinking you're important. And you could generate a following based upon your own ability to put yourself forward. But that only happens if you put yourself forward. And Jesus says, but I got a different way of doing this. If you really want to be exalted, I, I, you have to humble yourself. Because if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. All right? And that's part of Jesus' upside-down world. It doesn't work that way, really, truly speaking, in our culture. Because we know that if you want to be first, you have to push your way to the front of the line. And Jesus says, I, I run a different system here. And the system I run is an eternal system. And it has a lot more satisfaction. And it will do some true changes in your heart. And if you really, truly want to be in the place that is first, Jesus says, put yourself last. Because those who put themselves first will be last. Those who put themselves last will be first. And so Jesus is saying, it's not like how everybody thinks. It's not like the broken, sinful heart that we have. It's a different system. If you want to be the greatest, Jesus says, then you have to be the servant of all. You have to humble yourself and become the low person in the room if you truly want to be the best person in the room, the most esteemed person in the room. So now, as we think about this and how this whole story works and everything, and how what in the world does this have to do with generosity? I have no idea. Um, no, I have a lot of idea here. Um, who are you in the story? Uh, it's a question I like to ask. Um, it, and, and if you've already thought I'm... You know, God, I think I'm not like that Pharisee. Then I have good news for you. You are. Um, and you just condemned yourself. Um, because anybody that says, I'm not like that guy, 
I'm not like that girl is worse because you've judged yourself as better. And in God's eyes, you're not. You've actually put yourself to a place where God looks at you and says, so you think that by your effort and your energy, you can earn it, but you can't. See, the Pharisee thought he was being generous because what did he do? He fasted twice a week. I mean, I'm spiritual. I fast twice a week, right? No, I don't. You can see that. Um, um, I tithe 10% of my income. I'm being generous. Well, that was like the baseline. It was, it was okay. It's really good. But I, I tithe 10% of everything to God. But the reality, he was stingy. Because everything he did, he did for his own heart. He did for his own advancement. He did for ulterior motives that had nothing to do with God. And everything to do with self-righteousness. So when everybody would go, look how generous this guy is. Jesus says, he's not generous at all. He's so self-focused. He's bankrupt. And then the bankrupt person, morally speaking, spiritually speaking, is the guy that ended up with the generosity. Not from himself, but from God. And Jesus looks at you and me through this story and says, so, you know, who are you? Are you the guy that exalts himself or the gal that exalts herself? Or are you the guy or the gal that humbles himself? Because the tax collector was the only one that went home justified. The danger of a righteous person is to trust in their righteousness. The Pharisee thought he was giving a generous gift to God by his life, but he wasn't generous at all. In the church, I think it works this way. Um, one, one of my favorite quotes, I've quoted this for close to 30 years, was by Pastor Fred Craddock. And um, he says it this way. It still sticks with me. The offense of grace is not in the treatment we receive, but in the observation that others are getting more than they deserve. The generosity of God quite often cuts across our calculations of who deserves what. For all our talk of grace, the church still has trouble with it. You see what this pastor is saying in this little commentary? He says, um, man, we're lost in the church. We're hypocrites in the church. Um, because we, we say we're, you know, we got this truth. Um, but we don't have any grace. Because we think we have grace, but then we look over there and we see that God gives grace to that person. And we start judging and we go, time out, God. Have you seen how good I've been and how much grace I deserve? I see at the time of Jesus, the religious people crucified Jesus because of this principle right here. They said, oh, oh, yeah, people deserve grace, but not those people. See, they're too far gone. Because we've created a system. We've created a line. And we're, we're not Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. We're, you know, we're, we're good. We're up the ladder. We're certainly not like those other people. And for all our talk of being people filled with grace, we've created a system of self-righteousness and works. And somehow we're a little bit higher on the scale than all those other people, whoever those other people are. And then when Jesus shows up and hangs out with those other people, we're seriously offended at Jesus. We're mad at Jesus because you should be hanging out with me because I'm the one that fasts twice a week. I'm the one that gives 10% of my earnings, God. I'm the one that does all these amazing things for you. And Jesus isn't impressed by that. The only thing Jesus is impressed by is a broken heart, a repentant heart, a contrite heart, as it's said about David. That God is not going to refuse. And what happens in our heart as church people is that we still develop a system of works. Even though we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, we still create a system. And the system is, 
the longer you, you know, the longer you're in a relationship with Jesus, the longer you're saved, the system is we feel pretty secure. And the more we do things, which are great, the more we give, the more we serve, the more we do all the stuff we do, we start to feel pretty self-confident about that, pretty excited about that. And that God's lucky to have us, as pathetic as that sounds, okay? And it's all about, God, you're really, you know, you really got a good one here in me, you know? Man, you're pretty lucky you saved me, because look at all the awesome stuff I've done for you. And we break our arm patting ourselves on the back. And then when somebody walks in and God shows grace to them, we're like, time out, God, that's not fair. After all I've done for you. And we're offended by the grace of God. The people who would have heard this story would have been offended by Jesus' illustration of the two people because certainly the Pharisee was the one that went home justified because we see all those actions. But it wasn't about the actions, it was about the heart. And so when I think about our church and I think about how we serve and how we give and I think about ministry and I think about just generosity, are we being stingy with righteousness or are we being generous with righteousness? Are we being stingy with grace? Are we holding on to grace because we have it? Or are we being free with grace? And that's a risk because some people might get it that we don't think deserve it at all, right? Because we all have a line. We all have a list. We all have a ladder. And there are some people on the ladder that we're not, you know, we don't really want in our circle, you know. And Jesus wants all of us in that circle. You know, we look on the outside. It was uh, the prophet Samuel who had a problem with this as he was looking at David. And he didn't see all this stuff. And David's brother. And God says, you know, people look on the outside. But I look on the heart. And the question is, what does the heart look like tonight? Is it broken? Is it contrite? Is it I'm beating my chest in sorrow because I'm a sinner? Or is it I'm I'm okay? I mean, I've, I've gone to church enough. I, I serve, I give, I do all those things. Because I've, I've been a follower of Christ since 1979, but I'll tell you this. Man, one of the hard things I've got to keep remembering is I'm still a man in need of a Savior. I'm still a broken person. On my own, I'm as far away from God as it gets. And I'm a pastor, and I stand up on a platform and talk to you guys, right? But the real me inside, man, I am broken. And I, I need Jesus as much and more today because I understand more of who I am today than I did almost 40 years ago. Um, I, I wrote this down. God isn't impressed with our forms of righteousness. When we attempt to fix ourselves by our own effort, when we attempt to improve our lives enough to feel good about our condition, when we attempt to be our own Savior and Lord... We fall completely flat and far away from the one who is willing to generously save us. Our self-righteousness then hinders others from seeing the grace of Jesus and keeps them from God. The people that pushed out the hurting and broken at the time of Jesus were the religious people. And you want to talk about judgment on people? When the self-righteous religious people exclude the hurting and broken from Jesus. He got pretty angry. Jesus came to this earth 
to give his life away to people that were willing to beat their chest in sorrow and say, have mercy on me because I am a sinner. Not for the people who say, God, you're lucky to have me because I do all this stuff for you. And really, who are we in the story? Or who do we want to be in the story? Let's pray. Father, um, I know I'm a lot like the self-righteous Pharisee. I've been a follower enough years. I've seen enough stuff go on. And for crying out loud, there's, there's been a lot of good stuff going on through sunrise, Lord. And, and it's so easy to forget that we're hurting and broken and every day we need you. Um, Father, I, I don't know what the condition of our hearts are here tonight, but I pray we're like that tax collector. That we're the worst person in the room. Or as Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. May that be the condition of our heart. May that be the attitude of our heart. That we're not here because we've earned it or deserve it. We're only here because of your grace. In just a few minutes, Lord, we're going to sing some songs. We're going to have communion. We're going to give an offering. And all that could be good or all that could be horrible. It's all about our motive and why we do what we do. Are we the people that are willing to confess that we don't have righteousness and cry out for your righteousness to cover us? That's my prayer. I pray in your name. Amen.